Hello again, friends. Welcome on into episode 177 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network, embarked to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield, back in the big chair for today, Thursday, March 4th, 2021. It's a mailbag show. We're going to do that in the second half of the episode. Uh, got a bunch of questions in. I'm excited to get to those in a minute. Uh, but we're going to deal with a couple of different things in the first half of the show. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Mac Jones. I'm going to talk a little bit about Jalen Waddle. Um, I've got some video work on both of those guys. It's up either my YouTube channel, uh, which you can check out. You can find it via my Twitter or Big Blue View or Touchdown Wire. Um, you can find them that way as well. But I wanted to talk about those two Alabama players just for a couple minutes here at the outset. Um, some things I've picked up on watching those guys uh, in the past week or so um, that I wanted to get to. But before we do any of that, your usual cavalcade of reminders. Please do follow along with the hijinks, and there is always hijinks, uh, at Mark Schofield on the Bird app. Uh, follow the work. Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Uh, not one, not two, but the three SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, and Pat's Pulpit. And of course, USA Today's Touchdown Wire. Um, you're getting free agency stuff from Doug Farrar and myself. Doug watched tape with Joe Montana on Wednesday. I mean, how cool is that? Um, he's got a pretty cool piece up. I'm talking with Montana about some of his best throws, you know, Super Bowl 16, Super Bowl 23, um, Super Bowl 19, the catch. Um, so definitely check that piece out. It's quite cool. Uh, Doug did a fantastic job with it. Um, let's talk Mac Jones first. And obviously Mac Jones is in the news because we're there in the draft. Quarterback discussion always dominates draft season, and we're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, and as Mac Jones is rising up boards, and he is rising up boards, there has been a lot of focus on Mac Jones handling pressure. And I do think that that is perhaps one of the biggest question marks facing Mac Jones. And so I've got a video piece up that I alluded to that I wanted to sort of talk about here at the outset. It's a deep dive into how Mac Jones handles pressure. And you can watch it. I'm not going to take you through all the plays and stuff like that. I'm going to tell you my thoughts on it. But if you're interested in this idea, I would suggest that you watch his game against Georgia. I was talking with Ben Solak. Um, he charts quarterback stuff. Um, he had the Georgia game, and this matched up with my own notes, as the game in which he was pressured the most. Ten charted pressures, according to Ben. And so if you want to see how Mac well, how well Mac Jones handles pressure, I think you want to watch that game. But a couple of things sort of stood out to me watching Mac Jones try to handle pressure over the course of his entire final season at Alabama. I think he does a better job of it than perhaps people give him credit for. He's not he's obviously not the world's best athlete at the quarterback position, let alone all of football. But I do think he has a solid process for how he handles pressure. And what I mean by that is he will look to climb, and that might be a function of his relative athleticism vis-a-vis -vis other quarterbacks, right? Other quarterbacks, your Kyler Murray's, your Trey Lance's, your Zach Wilson, they'll bail. You know, even if it's edge pressure, sometimes they'll bail. Um, they'll go out the back door of the pocket, so to speak, because they know, look, 
doesn't matter who that defensive end is or that outside linebacker or the edge, you're going to beat that guy outside. Jones doesn't have that ability, so he will look to climb first, and I've got examples of that. If he starts to climb and that gets closed to him, then he'll exit the back door of the pocket, and sometimes he's able to do that and extend the play well enough to make a throw downfield. He also has a very good understanding of where the weak points in his protection are on a given play from down to down and whether that's going to hold up or not. There's a great video I saw. Um, I didn't make it into the video that I did, but a great play that I saw where he trusts the protection to hold up and so he doesn't bail, doesn't climb, doesn't do anything. It's an overload look, but he trusts that between the guard and the tackle and the back, they can get it blocked up. But then he feels it start to break down. One of the guys loses up front, and then he vacates. There's another example, which is in the video breakdown of a a second and two against Notre Dame in the semifinal game where they bring an overload B-gap blitz. Two guys shoot through the B-gap between the guard and the tackle. Running back can't pick up both of them. And so he knows he's going to spin away from that, and he does, and he's athletic enough to avoid those two guys, make a throw to the flat, move the chains on second and two. And so he does a very good job at knowing where the weak points are in pressure schemes and making sure that if those can't get it blocked up, he'll find a way to escape. But more than anything else, I think there are two lessons that I learned from doing this exercise. One, he doesn't have the secondary movement skills that other guys do. And so he's going to need to know that and take care of the football accordingly. And his NFL franchise, his NFL home, is going to need to understand that and take care of the football accordingly. There's a play against Ohio State in the national championship game where they bring, he's looking to carry out like a weak, naked concept. He gets the weak side blitz as he spins out of the fake. That guy's in his face. He tries to deke him, doesn't really secure the ball. Ball gets punched out. He's got to understand that in that moment, and it's a, he was put in a hard spot. It's almost impossible to ask, but when you're talking about whether you're drafting a guy ninth or 10th in the first round of the NFL draft, you dive into the weeds. He's got to understand in that moment, he's got to secure the football and either turtle or understand that he's not going to be able to deke this guy, so find a way to throw it away or something. You're not going to deke, if, you, if you're not deking that guy in college, you're certainly not doing it in the NFL. And his NFL franchise needs to know that. So that's one lesson. The other lesson is this. He seems to handle pressure well in terms of just knowing the shot is coming, making the throw on time in rhythm, and accepting the fact that he's going to get hit. And perhaps that's sustainable in the NFL. Perhaps not. Um, And so I'll leave you with this. The idea of the three Ps, right? Three Ps. Jordan Reed talked about this when I did a show with him. Um... The three Ps when it comes to Mac Jones, protection, playmakers, and playbook. Those are the things you need to have in place for him. If the New England Patriots, in your mind, can do that, then Mac Jones will be an okay draft pick. Even at 15, although, yeah, I know. But if they can put the offensive line in front of him, the playmakers around him, then they can do it. Um, The question becomes, will they have done that enough to make us satisfied with Mac Jones at 15? Something to think about. The other player I want to talk about, and I've gone long on Mac Jones. Shocker, me going long on a quarterback. 
um, is Jalen Waddle. And if Jalen Waddle is on the board at 11, I will be ecstatic if the New England Patriots draft him. He may not be wide receiver one for you. He might, he's not wide receiver one for me, but he's wide receiver two for me. And what I love about watching Jalen Waddle, and maybe it's a soft spot I have for track guys, because he was a track guy at Houston Episcopal. Ran the 100, ran the 200, did the long jump. Had some great times in both those sprinting events. 22 feet, 9 inches on the long jump, which is pretty darn good for a high school kid. Um, 10, I think it was 10-6 or 10-9-8 in the 100 and 22-4 in the 200. Again, fantastic times. And you could see his track background show up in his route running. And again, I've got multiple videos of Waddle on YouTube, Big Review, Touchdown Wire. Um, but when he's running for, he had this great over route against Texas A&M. He's running an over route left to right out of the left slot. And he uses three different gears on that play. And, you know, a kick, a third gear, whatever you want to call it for a track athlete, you usually see that more in the 400, the 800, um, the 1,000. The mile. Um, you don't usually see a second gear, a kick, a third gear in the 100 or the 200. But any track athlete knows that having the ability to pace yourself, having the ability to kick into a gear or an extra gear or a third gear, depending on the race, you might need that. It just comes natural to you. And on this over route, he uses, like I said, three different gears. He slow plays it off the line. Then he accelerates a bit as he rounds into his break. And you can almost see that Texas A&M defender start thinking, oh, this is, his, this is his acceleration gear. Okay, I can match this. And then as he gets sort of out of his break and starts to flatten that route and take it across the field, that's when he hits him with the third gear. And he just leaves him behind. He just absolutely leaves him behind. And that ability to use pace is so impressive from him. He had against, um, I believe it was A&M, I might not be right on that, but an out-and-up route from the left side stack slot. And again, sort of slow plays it off the line, gets to about eight yards, takes a couple of steps to the inside. Both the corner who's covering sort of a man trail technique and the safety start to bite down. And then he breaks vertical and just turns on the jets. And it's like a sprinter coming out of the blocks, just explodes and gets over the top of the defense in a blink of the eye. Same thing with his Missouri game. It's the, a thing of beauty. And he had obviously the catch, the post route, beats the defender, gets helicoptered by the safety, hangs on. Anybody that mentions Jalen Waddle knows that play. Just say the Waddle catch. Anybody that mentions Jalen Waddle knows that Missouri game. It's like the stuff of scouting lore. Whenever he gets drafted, that Missouri catch, the post route, will be on the highlight package at ESPN or the NFL Network. But he had a slot vertical for a touchdown later in that game where they bracket him, slot defender on the outside, safety on the inside. Safety's playing 10 yards off. He gives a quick hesitation move off the line and explodes. And again, it's that sprinter coming out of the blocks like a just an absolute cannon shot. And they can't cover him. And Jones drops it in perfectly. Touchdown. Missouri game, must watch if you're 
diving into Jalen Waddle at all. And so I, I just wanted to talk about those two Alabama guys, um, both of whom might be in play at 15. Who knows? Um, but we do have free agency news to get to, along with your questions on this mailbag installment of the Sco Show. That is all next here on episode 177 of the Sco Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 177 of the Sco Show. And before diving into your questions and some news, I do want to just give a little plug. You know, I sometimes plug some stuff that's going on that has nothing to do with football or anything else, just recommendations, stuff like that. Um, Stardew Valley, update 1.5 is out. It's fantastic. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, I'm a huge fan of playing Stardew Valley because it's like, Wrote and mindless, but yet soothing in a strange way. You know, I will get done with work at like 1030 at night and I'll flip on Stardew Valley for like 30 minutes and just, you know, cultivate the, the farm a bit, uh, do some fishing, maybe do some exploring. In update 1.5, they have Ginger Island, which is a sort of tropical island you can go to. And the music at Stardew is awesome, too. And they've got actually a new song as part of the update for Ginger Island. Um, it's got like steel drums to it. And it's 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 all like, you know, I'm playing the main theme right now that you can hear on my phone, but it's all very like 8-bit in a sense. Um, so there's like the main theme to the game right there. But here's the, there you go. There's a little Ginger Island for you. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge Stardew Valley fan. Absolutely love it. And if that sounds like something you're into, then uh, definitely check it out. Um, but let's get to both some news as well as your questions. And Wednesday in the NFL world sort of started off with Diane Rossini from ESPN saying that she had been texting with a general manager or head coach, one or the other, and that we're going to be seeing a lot of named players, big name players getting cut, given salary cap concerns, the start of the new league year, and that process is sort of underway. Kyle Van Noy, Golden Tate, Kyle Rudolph, um, Henry Anderson are all names that got cut, and a lot of you guys asked about that. And so I do want to sort of start with some free agency questions that came in. Um, first of which comes from Patriots Football Chat with Jake and Matt at Pat's Chat UK. Again, follow everybody on Twitter. Um, show some love to your fellow Pats fans or sports fans. Um, your thoughts on Rudolph and Kyle Van Noy in New England. Um, and I'll tie this with Aaron Williams at big underscore daddy 814. Obviously, there will be plenty of Kyle Van Noy speculation. But what do you think about the kind of impact he could make on Uche, Jennings, Winovich, more veter veteran leadership? Um, so let's sort of start there. I think, obviously, the idea of Kyle Van Noy's return is attractive. Um, you saw what Kyle Van Noy was able to do in sort of that more athletic role, allowed to, to freelance a bit more. The Patriots, and we've talked about this so many times in the past, their ability to see what a player can do and make it work rather than ask the question, what can't he do? They ask, what can he do? And if that will help them, then yay, they'll go out and sign that player. And I do think in sort of asking around, 
the Kyle Van Noy move down in Miami was perhaps, perhaps, a move to free up some cap space for perhaps, 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 Deshaun Watson? Maybe? Uh, Maybe that's, you know, false hope. Maybe that's rose-colored glasses. Uh, But maybe that is sort of the move that's underway. But, yeah, obviously, they need help everywhere on this roster. I'm everywhere, everywhere. Every show I go on, I say the Patriots need help everywhere. And, and bringing Kyle Van Noy back to help the second level of the defense, absolutely, absolutely. Especially if you look at where Dante Hightower is in his career right now. You know, he's going to be asked to do some specific things. He might just be like sort of an edge defender, pass rush specialist type of guy. Then you might need a more athletic guy off the ball, and Kyle Van Noy can do that for you. In terms of his sort of veteran presence and leadership, guy that's been there, won big games, won Super Bowls, like especially as you start looking at some of these younger guys, like Big Daddy mentioned in that tweet, you know, Uche, Jennings, Winovich, they need to learn. They need to learn how to be pros, how to handle different looks from offenses, technique. You never stop learning, and so Kyle Van Noy can impart that wisdom. Back to the question about Kyle Rudolph. Um, their tight end room is bad. Their tight end room is bad. Can Devin Asiasi and Dalton Keene get there eventually? Yeah, but there's a learning curve for tight ends that is slower because of and I will tell you, having watched so many tight ends this past week, you know, when you're watching Luke Farrell from Ohio State and making a case that maybe he's tight end 11 in your mind, yeah, you need to step away from the computer for a while. But that's that's where I was at Tuesday night, hand to God. And so I'm seeing how teams are using tight ends, and there's not a lot what happens at the college level, that truly translates to what you see NFL offenses doing. Um, there's Tony Poljan, the Virginia kid. I think there's a lot to like about him. Uh, Miller Forrestal, the Alabama kid. I think there's some stuff to like about him um, in terms of usage. But when you're seeing like Kenny Abo, the Mississippi tight end, like go in motion across the formation and, like, basically have a run and start to block a corner on the boundary. Like, I don't think you see too many NFL tight ends being asked to do that. You know, when these guys are lining up in the slot, you know, 75% of the time, and then they come to an NFL team and it's like, hey, you're going to be next to the tackle. We're going to need you to work a combination block on the five tech before you get up to the linebacker. And they're like, what? Yeah. Um, so... Kyle Rudolph, even if it's sort of a tight end to help mentor type role as the two young pups figure it out, yeah, absolutely. And so I I think you sort of take a look at that. Another name that uh, Big Daddy asked about, again, at Big underscore Daddy 814, asked about Henry Anderson, um, who was drafted in the third round by the Colts back in 2015, I believe, and then signed with the Jets. And was just released by the Jets in a cost-cutted move, which is interesting because, again, they have some decent cap space. Um, could he be a potential fit in New England? And absolutely. I spent, after that news was announced, I spent some time going through his 20 tackles 
um, from this past season, watching those on film. He had a fantastic one against Kalen Balaj um, in that game against the Chargers. He was lined up as a shaded nose tech, quick split of the gap between the center and the right guard, gets into the backfield, stops the play before it gets going, three-yard loss. What's intriguing about him to me, beyond the size, 6'6", 301, he's lined up everywhere. You know, in, in terms of his just general usage, you know, I charted out his alignments, and the bulk of it is at defensive end. But he's lined up everywhere on, on the defensive front for the Jets. You know, he had 144 snaps on right defensive end and then 15 at left defensive end. But then he had 104 snaps at like left D tackle, 199 snaps at right D tackle. And then he had 93 snaps as a shaded nose tackle. That was 17% of the time. Um, so there's somebody that's been used all over the place. Now, he's always attacking. Like he had like maybe three snaps where he's just dropping off the line as a rat underneath. Actually, seven. Couldn't read my hand right in there. But the bulk of the time, look, he's rushing either on the inside or off the edge. He's asked to penetrate, but he can do it from a number of different points along the defensive front. And if they lose Guy, if they lose Butler, if they lose both, this seems like the type of move that Belichick would make in a heartbeat. And so, yeah, I, I'd be very intrigued by that opportunity, that potential opportunity. Uh, Pablo Joel at Joel Pablo, H-O-E-L-P-A-B-L-O. Would a four-quarterback room with two rookies, Stidham, and a veteran be a benefit with Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels as teachers, five with a practice squad quarterback? I can dream. I'm with you to an extent. I think it would be fantastic for content. I would be very excited if, say, Stidham, Fitzpatrick, let's just say veteran quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick, um, Mac Jones, we'll just say Mac Jones since we talked about him, and then Ian Book, those four guys. I would love that from a content standpoint. And maybe they sign a, a UDFA type, so you get an extra rookie in there. Uh, Brady White, the Memphis kid. I would love it from a content standpoint. Absolutely love it. The problem is the snaps, right? Even in OTAs, minicamp, you only have so much practice time. You know, there's a debate being had sort of under the surface in the wake of quarterback rankings and things like that. Um, in terms of, you know, you've seen people have guys like Mac Jones as QB1 saying that, look, you know, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, those pocket types, like they made it work. Yeah, but that was before the new CBA, limited practice time. Like now you got to get on the field and that's where the mobility discussion sort of comes into it. And so because of that, having five guys to get reps for might be fun for like the first week of training camp, but eventually that practice time is going to have to whittle down. You're going to have to focus on the top two, top three guys. And so you might see five to start, but it might get whittled pretty quickly. Again, last year... Lewerke, uh, Jamar Smith, like they had extra guys, Dolaga, but they had to whittle it down once the season began because you got to get guys ready for Sundays. And so, you know, we might see that to start, but it might get whittled down pretty quickly. Um, final question. Oh, two more, two more, two more. Uh, Matt Murden 
Matt underscore Murden, M-U-R-D-E-N. Um, he's from Nottingham Forest, a Nottingham, Nottingham Forest season ticket holder. And I think that's why he asks this question. Do you follow any other sports teams from around the world? And if you do, who are they and why do you follow them? Um, being from Boston, I'm a Pat Celtics, Bruins, Red Sox guy. Like That's never going to change, um, even though the Celtics, although they've won a couple games now. Um, so they're starting to perhaps turn things around, um, even though the Red Sox have made some curious decisions from a roster construction standpoint. Um, Bruins started off hot. Um, I'm still, look, the big four for me, that's them. Um, I do think the reason why Matt asked this question, and I'm pretty sure um, it's come up a lot in the past, and we've talked about this, Matt and I have. Um, I'm a Newcastle United fan. I'm a Newcastle United fan, and it is becoming harder and harder to be a Newcastle United fan. Matter of fact, I did a show, I do a show every year with the guys at Waxen uh, Lyrical, um, Paul Wainsright, um, Neil Dutton, um, some guys from England. Um, I come on every year to talk draft quarterbacks with them, and every year it ends with them asking me my uh, sort of heat check on my status as a Newcastle supporter. And it's it's bleak. It's ugly right now. Um why did I become a Newcastle United supporter? Well, it was similar to, if you remember when Bill Simmons went through his whole choose a Premier League thing, I watched a bunch of different teams to get a feel for the fans, the supporters, the history. And this was before 2004 when the Red Sox had yet to win a World Series. Um, I identified a lot with Newcastle. Um, plus, I liked the beer, Newcastle Brown Ale. Long-time shirt sponsor uh, for Newcastle United. As a matter of fact, I've got one of those tops up in my closet. I've got a number of Newcastle tops in my closet, some of which I can't wear anymore. An orange number four, Johan Kabai, can't wear it. Uh, the black and white stripe, Northern Rock with Hatem Ben Arfa, number 37 when he first signed, not the number 10 when he you know, changed his number, the number 37 when he first signed. Um not that I, I would love to wear that, but I've I've grown a bit since I bought those two, actually. Um, so I can't really fit in those anymore. But I've got the old school throwback with uh, the blue one with the Newcastle United logo, the brown ale logo. Um, I used to love getting on eBay uh, Newcastle jerseys. I used to love it. But I don't do it as much anymore because the, the club is just, it's hard to watch. It's, it's hard to watch this proud sports franchise get run into the ground by an ownership, by an owner, really, um, that seems to just have no desire at improving the team. Um, and when you're lawning for the days of Alan Pardue and passports with Pardue, I mean, that, you know, that year when they qualified for Europa, um, almost made it into the top four, like... I think that was, what, 2014? No, wait, no, no, no. More like 2013. That was fun. That was, I remember it was near the end of the season. They still had a shot to finish in the top four. And my family went on a cruise and I was so curious. I was going to be able to somehow watch their games. Um, But we came back for the final Sunday and it just didn't come together for them. But still, um, that year was fun. It's been a long time since then. Um, and so, yeah, Newcastle is the sort of team that I follow from the 
outside of the Patriots, the Bruins, the Celtics, the Red Sox, it's Newcastle. Like those are the five teams that I actively follow. The bigger thing is if there's a sport on sport on television, I'll watch it. Like doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, Newcastle is the other club there. Final question to get to, um, and this is a fantastic one. And we need a couple minutes here. Um, from Damon Brokes at D A M E N B R O O K E S. What's your recipe for veal cutlets? Um, and I know why this came up. Um, Matt Waldman and I talked on cook, a show, I think like a year ago, about things we like to cook. And I talked about veal cutlets. And I have, it's, it's one of my like treats that I make for myself. My wife doesn't like veal. Kids certainly don't eat it. Um, but every once in a while, um, as a throwback to my mom and her mom making veal cutlets, I'll make them for myself. Um, every once in a while, if I get the urge, I'll make cutlets. I like making cutlets. I really do. Um, but as far as cutlets in general, I do this for chicken or veal. First of all, you got to pound them thin. Okay? When, whatever you get from like thin sliced or the scallopini cut and, and the cutlets from the store, the butchers, they do good work. Um, but you got to pound them thin, you know, because you've got to get them pretty uniform because the last thing you want is a dry cutlet. So you can't do that. So you got to pound them thin, make them nice and uniform. And then you got to, I'm a firm believer, not just in breading, but over breading. And here's what I mean by that. After you've pounded them thin, you got to let them sit in the fridge for like three hours to just dry out a bit. Because um, that's going to really allow the breading process to take effect. Because the last thing you want is when you're frying these things up is to take them out and half the bread is left in the pan. That's no good. So after they've dried out, here's the bread and process. You're going to pat them down a little bit. First step, Wondra flour. It's the pre-sifted flour. You can get it uh, at the grocery store in the bacon section. It's a pre-sifted flour. Slap some of that on. Shake off the excess. Dip in the egg mixture. Egg, a little bit of milk. Um, drip off the excess, bread once, breadcrumbs, Italian, but you have to add extra spices. You can't, again, you can't rely on the factory. You got to put extra spices in there. Fresh, if you've got the patience, the dried stuff is good too. Parsley, oregano, all the Italian stuff, basil, get it all in there and bread it off with the breadcrumb mixture, shake off the excess, back into the egg, shake off the excess, bread them again. So it's basically a triple bread and process between the flour and two different bouts with the breadcrumbs. Then you let them rest for a bit. You get the oil hot, but not too hot. You don't want to sear these bad boys, but you do want it hot enough because if they're just sitting in the pan, they're going to get soggy. So it's going to be hot enough that they do cook, but not too hot that they get scorched. So, you know, you fry them up. And the true trick to old school Boston North End bread cutlets and i've talked about this with other people too that grew up in the area you don't dry them on paper towels you take the brown shopping bags from the grocery store that you have sitting under your sink and that's what you dry them on and i know it sounds disgusting right but that's what i grew up on and i've talked to a lot of people uh that grew up in around the new england area and like we all remember it when the family's making cutlets your grandmother your mother they're making cutlets you, you dry them on the brown paper bag i don't know what it is but it just seems right um so you dry it on those and there you go you should be good to go that's how i make them it's a process and i usually don't do it until like the season is over 
or if like I've got a week where I've got all my work done, it's like a bye week or something. Cause it takes like, I'll start at like one in the afternoon with the entire process. The other thing is I'm somebody that gets, that hates getting my hands dirty. And so I will literally like make a cutlet, wash my hands, make a cutlet, wash my hands. Part of it might be an OCD thing. Part of it might be like, by the end of it, you've got all your hands or your fingers are breaded and you can't really do anything with them. Um, but that's my veal cutlets recipe. Um, it's a process, but it's worth it. That will do it for today. I will be back Monday, mock draft Monday. Until then, friends, stay safe. Wash your hands like I do. Sin along. And bless those Patriots reigns down in Foxborough.